Hello there and welcome to our Over Our Grad Mall music podcast discussion with George Patterson talking about the fantastic music from 1983. The full podcast, including all songs chosen by George, can be heard on Spotify. Search Over Our Grad Mall. However, if you can't access Spotify, this is a copy of all the chat from that podcast. You can, of course, listen to George's songs on Apple Music too, just not in this podcast. Apologies for this, and hopefully one day we can publish in full on Apple as we do on Spotify. Enjoy, stay safe. Hello there, and welcome to the latest episode of Over Our Garden Mall, a music podcast that is setting out to establish, if possible, what the best year for popular music was. To help us do that, we will be joined by a special guest on each episode who will nominate their favourite year and provide a playlist of songs from that year, which we'll listen to and debate. I'm Brian Davidson, and I am joined today by my co-host and neighbour, McD. How are you doing, mate? Good I've had better days, uh, but we'll not go into that just now. How's flooding? Yes. You okay? At least it wasn't my vinyl collection, that's all I'm saying. Fingers crossed. I'm wiping I'm wiping every booklet and every CD that I've got in an effort to save them. Okay, good luck with that. And more, yep. more importantly by today's guest, George Patterson. George is a singer and musician who has fronted bands including White and DMP. He's also a writer and has recently released his debut novel, The Girl, The Crow, The Writer and The Fighter, which one review said is, quote, possibly the finest American novel not to come out of America. George also does a great weekly request show on Cumberland FM, Lost in Music, and the house rules for song requests on the show are no swearing and no shite songs. <laughs> we can hopefully adhere to at least one of them tonight. <laughs> Hi, George. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Wendy. And thanks for taking the time to join us today. Oh, you're more than welcome. Really looking forward to playing some of the tunes you have chosen from your nominated year, which is? 1983. 1983. We've got a year in the 80s. Woo! <laughs> uh, we have already had some fantastic guests um, and years, all making a case for their year being the best, and 83 is just looking bob on to me. So, intro's over, let's play your first selection. From one of Glasgow's finest, this is Orange Juice with Rip It Up. So, that was Orange Juice with Rip It Up. So, George, let's get stuck into your discussion. Why 1983? 1983 was a year I turned 16. The very start of 1983, I turned 16. And it was a, a seminal year for me in many ways that I'll, I'll go into during the discussion. But it was probably the year that confirmed that I didn't want to do a 95 and I wanted to get into the music business by hook or by crook. So start of 83 was... My, my dad and my mum had saved up and bought me an electric guitar. I desperately wanted this electric guitar. They bought me this Les Paul copy. It, was, it didn't arrive in time for my birthday. arrived a couple of days after my birthday. My dad brought it into my room that morning. And before I went to school, I went, there you go, mate. I was like, wow, what, what, what an axe this is. That was me. I started. I couldn't, couldn't play it properly. I couldn't tune it. A couple of chords, but my mate from next, the next close up was he did a Les Paul copy, and so me and him were in a band together. That was it. So if you had a, a guitar, you were in a band, just yeah. made noise in each other's bedrooms. <laughs> and uh, at that time, I just wanted to uh, the jangly Glasgow sound of Postcard Records, and they were they were they looked like us. They sounded like us, uh, and they were just up the road. You know, Bobby yeah. was, he grew up in Cardot, he was 
it's better about time in Govan, but I think he grew up in Cardonald, down Cardonald yep. way. So right. it was literally just over the road for us. Um, so it felt as if it was possible to, you know, do this. It wasn't, you know, like Duran Duran on yachts and stuff like that. It was like guys from your street wearing like suede jackets. You're like, yeah, yeah, I can do this. Yeah. So we had no idea how to do it, but we wanted to do it. And songs like Rip It Up The Arms just, just felt like this is a roadmap to where I want to go. Yeah. It sounds like a, a whole bunch of good reasons for picking 83. Were there any other years that you gave sort of consideration to? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I think I'm a big pop fan. I love pop music. And I've, a few people you've had on the show are similar and they talk about it. I know Grant recently was talking about Grant McPhee. was talking about 65. And there's a whole bunch of tracks from 65 that I could go, oh, he never picked this, he never picked that, and I would have added them in, but he did pick a few that I do love. Um, so there are a couple of years, primarily, my, my favourite pop years would probably range from, you know, 64, 65, all the way through to about 84, 85. I, I can find something really good in every year between those years. They're the classic 20 pop years, those two decades are just perfect pop for me all the way. It's interesting you say that, George. Um, so the majority of our years so far have been mid-60s to kind of mid to late 70s. Yeah. And there's been a lot of referencing. There's been some kind of, you know, classic album tracks in there, but there's also been an awful lot of singles. Yeah. That people have well, talked about. Singles were a big thing for me. It was yeah. buying an album when I was younger. We didn't have a huge amount of money, so buying an album was... You had to make sure you, you know, you were hundred percent certain. I, mean, I would have sleepless nights before I bought an album. Could I justify spending three, four pounds on Outlanders that Moor? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. could I justify doing that on Zenyatta Mandata, <laughs> whatever it was called? <laughs> so there, there was a lot of that going on. You know, if, if, I, if I spend that, or if I buy the single that I like, you know, I'll, I'll try the single, and you know. Maybe move to the album. If, yeah. I, if it was right into it, then it, the album would have to be bought. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, so you've you've went for eighty three, and um, can, oh, as I say, a, a whole bunch of reasons for doing that. So, what about landing on your fifteen songs? Then, how hard was it to get the group of songs put together? Uh, I could have probably picked about thirty from that year. Really could have, and uh, to try and narrow it down to fifteen was almost impossible. But as I say, there's a whole bunch of tracks there that um, I haven't added in and I kind of doubled up on some artists. <laughs> I try not to double up in artists, yeah. but um, yeah, there's, there's, there's too many from that year. It's just, it's one of those years, every time I hear a track from it, I'm like, oh yeah. There are tunes from that year that I, I can't bear, you know, or, or I look, I listen to now and I go, oh, or I show my boy that, for instance, uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. Classic. Uh, I, right. You know, as a rush man, you probably like the <laughs> Jim Steinman kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, it was never my cup of tea back then. Yeah. Uh, but the video for it, it is probably the greatest video of the 80s. Yeah. Total Eclipse of the Heart. It's absolutely fucking bonkers. <laughs> I love it a bits. And I've showed it to my boy. My boy used to love that bit. 
yeah. There's a bit where the, the kid gets pulled up in the wire and he yeah. goes a bit too close to the camera. <laughs> it's the most unintentionally hilarious thing in any video in the 80s. I love it. Yeah. Bits. yeah. I'm imagining that there weren't too many health and safety checks going on <laughs> at, at the time, you know. So. <laughs> These guys with scarred retinas, <laughs> torches and rises. Funny you should say that. Actually, Bonnie might pop up later. Um oh. On, on one of the best of lists and stuff, so we'll, well, okay, and we'll touch on that as well, but you're yeah, right, it's an absolute it, buyer. I, I like her as a person, I'm not very keen on her music. But <laughs> <laughs> and why um, why rip it up for your first selection? It's just, I get, it's one of those, as I say, it was, this. as soon as I heard that intro, it instantly had my attention, and it sounded, I, I hadn't got any talking heads at this point, and later on, I sort of put two and two together, and I saw, oh, yeah, I can, I can sort of see where the influences were for people like Orange Juice. Mm -hmm. uh, they were very, very strongly into their pop music. And uh, I even mentioned on this track about uh, my favourite songs entitled Boredom. Uh, so the, and he starts with da -da 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 -da, the, the riff from the yeah. song Boredom. All those things I got later on, what grabbed me early was just how funky it was. And to find out these guys were from Glasgow and from the West End was like, I can't get my head around this. Yeah. Um, yeah. It and, they just, were, and they were really clever as well, weren't they? So they had that they had that kind of jangle hook, if you want. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I suppose a bit like Lloyd Cole and others that, that came in a little bit later, that once you actually get into lyrics, they were, you know, pretty clever stuff. Yeah. Every every single track I heard at that time that had the, the jangle guitar just forced me to pick the guitar up again and, and try and replicate what they were doing. It, it was liberating for me. Yeah, it was. And do you remember school? It became a pretty big hit, didn't it? So they were on Top of the Pops. Yeah. I think a couple I, of times I think they got on. Obsessed with Top of the Pops at that yeah. point. <coughs> Pardon me. My dad used to watch a programme called Garnock Way. I don't know if you remember it. Mm. Uh, it was on the same time as Top of the Pops. So if if he's watching Garnock Way, it's like some shitey old Scottish programme. <laughs> it's on the same time as Top I want to watch Top of the Pops. <laughs> this, is, this is my future depends on this. Yeah. Uh, but he wanted to watch Garnock Way. So probably about 81 or 82, they got me a wee portable telly, a wee small portable yeah. so that was in my room so I'd go in and watch it in black and white and this wee portable telly to the point where my dad would be like oh, you know what I'm not bothered about Gallery put your bloody music on and so I'd watch the and on colour and the colour telly in the living room so I eventually wore them down so I could watch the um I could watch it on top of the pops and seeing what they looked like it was like I need to get myself a check shirt I need to try and do my hair up like you know yeah. I need to try and dress like this and look like this. Well, they were on, I think they, they were on twice for the song. And um, the second time they came on, they, they got banned oh, after really? that because um, David McClement was, uh, to use a Glasgow word, blotto. Um, <laughs> and if you, if you rewatch it again, you'll see him sort of fall into the crowd and stuff. Oh, right. Okay. That's um, nice. Yeah. 
Yeah, just having a everything you would do, I guess, if you made it onto Top of the Pops, right? Um, I would definitely have done that. I yeah, would, so I, he, I did um... that every gig anyway. But was, <laughs> um, and, and a wee bit of symmetry with this is um, a couple of years later, my band supported Zeke Manika's band. Okay. Uh, so we played we played one gig with them in Glasgow, uh, supporting them. I can't remember what it was, Videodrome yeah. or somewhere like that. Yeah. Zeke Manika and his his group. So yeah, he was like, drumming by this point, wasn't he? That's right. Sorry, I see he was drumming by this point. He was, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was the, the yeah. drummer of the band. And this was kind of not late on as such, but obviously they they had been the the next big thing for quite a long time, I, hadn't they? I, before they they, they were a band I recognised from the the music magazines. I, mm. I knew the name before I heard the sound, uh, because you, you unless you listen to. You know, certain like Radio Clyde, Billy Sloan, I think, might have been around then, and he would do like local bands and stuff. Yeah. So you would get to hear a bit from them. Listen to John Peel every now and again, but uh, it was hit and miss. A lot of the stuff I listened to, and Peel, I just didn't like. So, um, yeah, getting to hear people like Orange just, you know, really only would hear them once they got in the sort of mid reaches of the charts, and then it became, you know, ubiquitous after that. It did, yeah. And this was what, so this was 83 and um, the actual, the band or the original band, they split up in 85. Mm -hmm. And uh, the final show was at a minors uh, welfare yeah. fundraising benefit gig, um, which they actually were supporting Aesthetic Camera and everything but the girl. They were first on, believe it or not. Right, okay. And it was uh, it was empty or half empty um, when they <sighs> come on. That. And I was reading the final song the the sign was a uh, rock and roll i gave you the best years of my life it's an old um kevin jackson yeah song uh, it was just perfect for for the kind of irony i guess that they always yeah. had in their, their their tunes um i also i noticed that uh talking about postcard and stuff because he was kind of embedded really wasn't he with um yeah. alan horn and that's right yeah. and stuff and uh, i stumbled across an old stv program i really don't know too much about it i think it was called suitcase or something like that but it was an interview with Alan Horn, um, okay. which is kind of quite unusual for him to to be on TV. Yeah. And then there's a few other bands on there. Paul Quinn's on there, and uh, a couple Quinn's of other guys is on. It's really good. The, the quality's not not great as you can imagine, but it's um, it's kind of of its time, and it, it it really helps to give a bit of context to what um, Horn was all about, and yeah. kind of you know that I guess that as you say the message. I think the first thing he says is, "We insisted that they all came up from London to Glasgow." All the yeah, like companies and stuff. And it changed. It was a game-changing yeah, uh, moment for Scottish art. Really, you know, it, was, it forced people out of their cozy Hampstead homes up to some wee scabby pub in Scotland to see <laughs> these phenomenal talents. You know, good, and it's never changed, right? So, Aye. Well, that's, yeah. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> and the the original band, I think, as I say, they split up. I think two thousand and uh, sorry, eighty five. Sorry, but they got back together in two thousand eight. Just for a one-off thing, I think they got recognition at a, an awards night or something, and they got together for one night. And oh, they'd sell the hydro if they get back together again. It'd wouldn't be that be good? Was, uh, get them back together again. Uh, get Roddy Frame into uh, play some of Edwin's uh, lead. Yeah, and do yeah. it. Let's just now, do it. Now you're talking. I'd love to see that. Because I've when, it, when he had his um his illness, um, Edwin yep. Collins and when he came back eventually to play. Yep. I, if I remember, I'm sure Roddy Frame did play. Roddy Frame was playing with him back then. He he jumped in and, and took over guitar duties. And Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols was okay. on the drums. Wow, 
Yeah. So yeah, that's a band, isn't it? Aye, that's yeah. a, that's a take that. And uh, we picked us up from I think I can't remember whose podcast it was, um, but from one of the other podcasts we found out that Orange Juice were the favourite eighties band of Robert Plant. Really? From I didn't know that. No, that's we good. didn't know that either. Um, that's, a, that's a good bit of trend. We liked that one. Yeah. So. I think he said, I think Robert Plant actually said it on Six Music. Really? I think it was Mark Radcliffe that was going on about it. But it's a bit of a shocker, isn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have called that. But then his, his albums with Alison Krauss, or, mm. you know, they, they hint at something quite uh, melodic rather than uh, hard rocking. It does indeed, and um, and it was a great way to start the podcast. I think it reached number eight, so it was the, the kind of biggest song, really. So, yeah, yeah. Um, could have been others, but but it's just it's, it's just something. It's just a tune that it's tune that I go back to and I play regularly. And forty years later, it still sounds fresh as a daisy. It does, and it also gives me makes you go back and listen to um, Buscocks and other stuff, doesn't yeah. it? So yeah, that's, that's yeah, good. Just, so. the, the, the 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 line goes back and it goes does. forward. It's, it's it does brilliant. Wonderful. So we're now we're kind of we're now back in eighty three. I guess we've got our, our heads back there now, which is great. Um, so from one great Scottish pop band to another, but maybe one maybe a little bit less well known than Orange Juice. So tell us about Friends Again and the track State of Art. State of Art was another one of those that it wasn't a hit, uh, but it was it was one of those tracks that when you heard it, and I, I must have heard it in Radio Scotland, maybe Tom Ferry or Billy, again Billy Sloan. I remember hearing it and thinking, this is a lot more sophisticated than the the you know the the standard you know jangly bands that were around at the time. It sounded as if they were a level above in uh, musicality. There was something about it. It just it felt as if it was. Although it was Glasgow, it felt as if it belonged somewhere else. So it was another. It was one of those. Another tune as a roadmap that sort of opened a door to the world. Mm. There's more out here than than Glasgow and Pollock and Priest Hill where I was growing up. Mm. There's a wee bit more out of there. So mm. love that. Tune. And you talked about you know being sophisticated. That's a really good description. But when you look at the the lineup with the band, you can kind of understand why really, can't you? Yeah, yeah. They're still Al almost they're, a kind of supergroup, really. And, and they are. They're still top dogs today, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they never quite hit the heights that I think their music and talents deserved, but you stand that song up against, you know, any song of, of its time and it, it stands up and, and very, very well against almost everything from that time. Great yeah. tune. And I, I know it wasn't, a, it kind of it flitted around the edges of the, the yeah, charts. Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was one of these ones pretty close and you you wonder whether if it, if it had have charted, you know, would they have kicked on? Because they didn't oh. last much longer really af after no, this. They, no. they broke and some went to Love and Money. Um, yeah. Chris Thompson formed the Bathers. And... Yeah, I think James, James Grant's opinion of that time was, it was very much Chris's band, the, the band... It was their direction, and James. I might be wrong about this, but James had. Uh, he, he never felt as warm about the Friends Against stuff as he did about his own stuff because he didn't feel as close or as much a part of it. Maybe he felt more of a sideman to to Chris. Uh, 
and it's a shame because together they they work phenomenally. That he's he's a he's an incredible talent, James Grant. And Chris Thompson's a great songwriter. Um, and there's a double connection here, isn't there? So um, James Grant's just played uh, some of the Frets gigs uh, as part of Celtic Connections. He played with yep. uh, Bernard Butler and uh, I, was there. Blake. I was there that night. Actually, I, I managed to get to the one in Partick, which was fantastic. As it soon looks, the the one on the Sunday night. Brilliant, wasn't it? And then yeah. I just read the other day that the Bathers are playing Frets and Straven. Yeah, uh, in June time, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that I guess well, will be a, a bit of a, a sort of place to be, I guess. Yeah. I'll definitely be looking to get. I think the tickets on sale tomorrow, the seventeenth, if I'm not mistaken. So okay. uh, I may have to try and my hooker by crook get to for that one. <laughs> Speak to but Douglas. James yeah. did play State of Art in uh, the Frets concert in the Celtic Connections concert. That was the first track he played, I think, when um, uh, when he opened the show. Yeah, with State of Art. So it it shows that he's not. Maybe he's warming to the the, the possibility of you know more friends again stuff. I don't know, but I'd, I'd love to see it. It would be lovely, and then the Paul McGeehan stuff's great as well. Have you heard his Starless? Starless um, yeah, 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 that's yeah. again beautiful. Really, really talented bunch of guys. You know, I'd love to see them do more. Yeah, me too, mate. Uh, sophisticated as it's a great, great kind of description. Really like that. So you mentioned earlier, it wasn't a commercial success, but plenty of critical acclaim and uh, real yep. influence, I think, across a number of bands over the, oh, the years. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's, so, you know, you can you, you can draw, you can see where, you know, bands like The Big Dish and then Deacon Blue, and all, they, when, when they're starting to get a wee bit more sophisticated in their sound, you can draw a line straight back to Friends again, guaranteed. Yeah. We can so let's get this one on. So from 1983, this is State of Art by Friends Again. I remember what they looked like. It was like white shirts. As the 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 uniform was the white shirt button to the top. You know, no tie, the floppy fifties uh, James Dean kind of haircut. Uh, skinny lads, uh, trousers halfway up their knees. It just they had that look about them that you know you. you you try and get away with that in Pollock when you're sitting and you get the shit, you know, chased up and down Brockburn Road. Uh, that was the Lotus Eaters, and we're just having a chat there off, um, off song just about, uh, you know, places we've saw bands like that and uh, an image and, and as uh, George says, what you can get away with or what you can't. Uh, when you're, you're younger, I remember Bobby talking about some of that stuff uh, from 1970, I think, and uh, he was talking about... Uh, uh, boot boys and stuff like that yeah. so it was slayed well, Bobby is a lot older than us so. <laughs> <laughs> and that's on the tape as well for sure <laughs> so, so we mentioned um, the sort of top five best selling singles earlier which were obviously sort of pretty big musical events George so what I've done is I've dug out a couple of other musical stories from the year um, just to give us a wee bit of a reference and I'll, I'll rattle through these and uh, any thoughts you've got just um, to shout out sure um, so they're kind of r roughly calendar order. So from February, um, sad one to start with, then Karen Carpenter passed away. Yeah, I remember that well. That was yeah, to show. actually, yeah. Uh, yeah. Tragic, voice, isn't it? It's the voice, though. It's just that uh, one of the ultimate pop voices, just one of the most natural singers and musicians of that era. Yeah, yeah very sad. Amanda McCune, uh, she went for 71 and uh, she picked a Carpenter song, oh. and uh, 
in the nicest possible way she said she hated her, you know, because she was just voice like uh, velvet, you know. Yeah, and she wasn't even a singer, she was a drummer. I don't that's mind, right. that's the thing, you know, it's <laughs> she always considered herself the carpenter's drummer who just happened to sing a couple of tunes. So. Oh, real shame, real shame. Um, same month, so that's an interesting one, uh, US Secretary James Watt caused controversy when he effectively banned the Beach Boys from playing at a 4th of July gig because he claimed that rock bands attracted the wrong kind of element. It's the Beach Boys, aren't it? You know? Exactly. <laughs> In the, the same week, President Reagan, himself an avowed Beach Boys fan, presented Watt with a plaster foot with a hole in it. So, Fair enough. Ronnie had his moments, I guess. Yeah. Um, not too many. Uh, July, uh, as a statement of protest against music piracy, um, the old home taping thing that I'm sure you and I never done. I did it. I, no, I, I freely admit <laughs> right now, and I've mentioned it on numerous occasions online. Uh, I yeah. radio, and I loved it. And I can't hear certain songs without having another one almost coming after it. I know what's yeah. coming next on those tapes. So, I think one of the guys said, same thing, one of the guys said that they also remember what then starts the next side. Yeah. Because you had to flip it over flip kind it of over really quickly. And I know it was on these comp and I used to just record them yeah. as and when. So this was a protest against home taping uh, and it was by Jean-Michel Jarre and he uh, released only one pressing of his latest album, Music for Supermarkets, which was sold at an auction to a French real estate dealer for 69,000 francs at the time. And it was also played on Radio Luxembourg um, for the first and only time. Yeah, and I recorded it off the tape. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, made a few quid out of it. Absolutely. What else have we got? Uh, August, uh, Johnny Ramon suffered a near fatal head injury during a fight over a girl in the East Village. September, uh, Joe Strummer and Paul uh, Simonon of The Clash issue a press statement announcing Mick Jones has been fired from the group. Terrible moment. Sad moment. Tragic. Absolutely no. tragic. What were they doing? Um, I know. I know. September, Phil Linnett performed his final show with Thin Lizzy in Germany. Ah, oh, uh, that's sad. I know there's not, there's not a lot of good news here. No, it's, and I'm it's, I'm finishing on a low as well. So December twenty fifth, Christmas Day, Marvin Gaye gives his father as a Christmas present an unlicensed Smith and Wesson. Oh, for so that Gaye could protect himself from intruders and a few oh, months later. Grief. So uh, you know, it's just it's a funny year. There's not there's not the kind of usual big festivals and yeah. you know those things that, that normally happen. It seems to be a lot of one off events that are. Well, it was, uh, as I said earlier on, it was a seminal year for me because uh, for a number of reasons, but halfway through the year in the July of that year, my own dad died uh, very suddenly at the age of 44, who had a heart attack and died. And it was none of us saw it coming. It was a, a real terrible moment for my family, one that my mum, you know, probably has never got over. Uh, so... All of those songs in that year, you know, you're saying the Lotus Eaters came out in the summer of '83. Uh, those were the songs that were like, resonating in my head during this time of great turmoil. So maybe that's why it's such a special year for me. Yeah, really, a real emotional connection. Yeah, yeah. But, and so my, dad got... wasn't, my dad wasn't big into music. He was not. He met Elvis Presley when he was in the army. 
Wow. Met him in Germany. That's his that was his claim to fame that he, he had a chat a brief chat with Elvis Presley. Um where was that? In Germany, uh, wow. in the late fifties, early late fifties, early sixties or something. He met him. And uh, and he didn't really like music very much, except for one song. He, my dad loved one song in particular, and he loved this song above all others. And it was Eddie Grant's "I Don't Want to Dance." <laughs> he, oh, I, and there's no reason. I, I don't know why he loved it, but anytime I come on, that was his song. I don't, and he'd sing it the way a Glasgow dad would sing it. You know, I don't want a dad. <laughs> and would, would they get up and do some moves on yeah, the couch? Would, yeah, yeah. The only other time I ever heard them singing was at New Year. They'd go down to the back close and they'd all sing Tony Bennett songs, Stunning on the Dykes and the Middens and stuff like that. You know, yeah. singing at the, you know, singing at the, 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 the flats in the tenement and stuff like that. And they're all drunk. But no, it's no, funny no. how you've got those those positive memories, if you want, from a which I'm sure was a difficult time for you. And ah, all these great musical memories as well yeah, for you. It, it's sort of saved, you know, if it can save the year, it's, you know, ha having that happen when it happened was, we were just about to move house as well. So it was like, everything was up in the air at that point. And the only thing that kept me sort of alive and kept me, you know, on track was, the music, the music was just, it just drove everything I did and it focused me even more uh, to get my, my shit together and get my head down and get on with it. Well, you're picking good songs, mate. So Thanks, mate. we've uh, we had two Glasgow ones to start with. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had one Liverpool and your next one's also uh, a Liverpool band. Um, so your next selection is The Story of the Blues. Oh, yes. So is it, do you, is it by Wah or The Mighty Wah or... Pete Wiley and the I Mighty Marky, you I remember? Just wah to start wah. with. Exclamation mark. Wah, exclamation mark. Then the Mighty Wah, exclamation mark. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that was the order that came in. Then Pete Wiley's the Mighty Wah, Wah. Spez, Spez, Atletico Spez 80, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. So why, why did you jump for this one, John? It's, it's one of those songs, even now, 40 years later, as soon as I hear that, in, intros are a big thing. As soon as you hear the intro, and there were a lot of great intros back then, as soon as I hear that intro, I'm like, if I'm in the car, I'm banging the roof, volume up, and the foot's going down, the right foot goes down, I'm going, breaking the law. Uh, it's just... A brilliant, brilliant song. I really thought Pete Wiley was going to be. I, I really thought he was a Beatles level talent. Mm. So he came out of that. You're absolutely right. The song's amazing. So he came out of that that Liverpool gestation yeah. period, uh, the incubation that he had. So his first band was with um, Ian McCulloch and Julian Cope. Yep. And of course, you know, late seventies and early eighties, they they then. They smashed it, didn't they? That's for, right, yeah. for a bit, and he he didn't, Holly, you know. And I think Holly Johnson was involved in some of the bands as well. He back was. Then. He was in Big Japan, wasn't he? Yeah. And um, and some other stuff as well. And uh, Wiley was always about, but you know, and had released some stuff, but just never really managed to, to get that. And then this song kind of came from nowhere. Oh, didn't it? just an absolute epic. Um, yeah. Is it, is it in white? I mean, it's it's kind of um, epic sound. It's almost a bit, I don't know, Phil Spectory yeah, sound, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you could say it's badly recorded. Uh, Too much, beat. almost. 
yeah, over-recorded. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you listen to old Phil Spector stuff, it's like, it's, it's bleeding all over the place. It's, you, you wouldn't, you listen to that these days and a modern engineer would be like pulling his hair out, but there's something about those classic old recording techniques that when it's magic, it's magic. And yeah. Pete Wiley certainly hit the jackpot with that one. He did. I, I saw the, um, I had a wee look at the video. Uh, I can't for, remember for the video. I should have tested you on that, shouldn't I? Yeah, um, I can't yeah, remember the video for he, he walks, he basically, I'm guessing he's walking around Liverpool, I'm guessing, yeah. and he goes down into a little basement bar, looks like King Tut's or somewhere like that. Right. And he sings the song in a, in a basement bar on his own. Um, and then the kind of the, the, the rest of the bars basically all just sitting there. So like I'll, I'll say down and outs for want of a better word. You, you know, guys that look sort of hard hard done in their luck. Yeah. Um, nobody talking, nobody smiling, whatever. And it actually it kind of really brings the lyrics into to focus. You know, because it's um, it's obviously all about things that don't go so well for you, but you, yeah. you know you you kind of keep going and and who knows where you get to type thing. Um, and I really enjoyed watching it, and and I I kind of wonder what what happened to him. But he released an album, and his album again didn't didn't do very much. He seemed well, to. It a hit afterwards called "Come Back." He did. That's right. Uh, that was a great yeah. tune. Uh, it had the same kind of sixties like, beat style that uh, "Story of the Blues" had. But when it comes to chart hits, I don't think he had many uh, more after that. But. Um, you he know, lost the, again, I think he lost his record label after the maybe the second album or maybe like an EP released after the first album. Um, he kind of lost his way a little bit and then eventually he came back, I think, in the 2010s. And he did actually release an album in the 2010s, which I really liked, which is called Pete Sounds. All right, Pete Sounds. another title <laughs> I really like. So uh, <laughs> these guys are knocking it out um, today. And it was also, it was uh, John Peel's single of the year. What story of the blues? Story of blues was yeah. So, I, I could see that it's, it's yeah. still, you know, it builds so well. Uh, it's a it's a brilliantly uh, pieced together tune. Um, the lyrics are fantastic. The arrangements great. Everything about it, it's just it's a great great tune. Yeah, it's I still love it. Yeah, me too, mate. Me too. So reaching number three in the UK singles charts. So they'll get this right. This is Wa, Wahi, Shambiko, <laughs> Sewa, GF Wa, the Mighty Wa, or Wa the Mongrel with the story of the blues. Excellent. Yeah. So that was um that was Friends Again. So we've had a couple of cracking tunes from Glasgow bands um, to start us off, George. However, the big hitters of the year um came from countries other than Scotland, and there was a kind of really heavy pop MTV influence started to come through in yeah. 83, which had been sort of coming from 81 or so when when all that stuff kicked off. So what I dug out for you, I've dug out the top five selling singles of the year, okay? Yeah. And which is fine, I'll rattle through them for you. But the thing I want to test your memory on is if you can remember the videos for I the five of them, right? The Even though I, uh, MTV didn't make it to Pollock at the time, you know, <laughs> Well, I think you're a slam dunk here, right? So, um, first one uh, is an easy jumping off point. Number five on the bestsellers was Total Eclipse of the Heart. That's the, <laughs> the single greatest video of the 80s, and I'll fight anyone who disagrees. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's literally, talk about kitchen sink uh, dramas, it literally has everything in there, doesn't it? Off the charts bonkers. It's, it's <laughs> magic. Uh, 
Bonnie how, Tyler. How did she get from Wales to to doing ah, that with Jim Steinman and uh, really, it's, yeah. she's got about three or four of these tunes. You're like, really, Bonnie, go for it. Yeah. Uh, that I, that that video, I just I just love to bits. I don't like the song very much, but yeah, uh, I'm not particularly keen on that kind of music. But that video is just it's it's a, it's a proper work of art. Um, the director for that one was Russell Mokahi. So okay, yeah, he did yes. the Highlander movies he and stuff. Queer as like Folk on, eventually yeah. on Channel 4 and stuff. So right. um, it's interesting. There's a wee bit of a theme here for a couple of them where it was a bit of a stepstone into a bigger yeah. um, kind of directing career, if you, if you want. Um, so that was five. Uh, four was Let's Dance by David Bowie. What was the video? I, I'm hoping we're going to talk about this later on because uh, that, I'm sure that's one of the tracks that I picked. That's probably one of the most evocative tracks of 1983 for me. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll save Bowie for later on. But, yeah, the video is uh, Bowie looking suntanned with bleached blonde hair. Yeah, I can't, can't forget that one. Yeah, In a wee uh, Australian bar. <laughs> it was, that's right. With, I think it's uh, with gloves on, if I'm not mistaken. And the uh, locals in the video pretty much. That's just right, yeah. dance to the music and um, yep. that's what they've done. So. Apocalyptic. It yeah. was. It was um, fantastic. Three was Red Red Wine by UB40. Yeah, I remember the video. He was uh, black and white and he was drunk and he gets pocket picked. Uh, yes. yeah. yeah, I remember that quite well, actually. Um, I, I think I always said at the time, I said recently, actually, that I think if UB40 had split up right after uh, Labour or Love, if, there is, if that was the last thing they did and they split up after that, they'd be held in very high regard these days. Whereas now they're just, they're known as a sort of reggae karaoke band, mm -hmm. which is a bit of a shame because the, the first three or four years they were out, they were they some great tunes. Yeah, a bit like, um, I don't know, if States Go split up after Quo Live. Yeah. Same thing really, right? So. You get Quo right up until 81, 82, if Quo yeah. just chucked to 81, 82, they'd be highly regarded. Yeah. I read um, that the pub that the video was filmed in, that actually closed um, not long after that, but it reopened about seven years ago. So it's now right. back to being a, a drinking pub again, which is good. Um a guy called Bernard Rose directed that one who ended up making The Candyman. Really? Oh, yeah. So again, that kind of whole that whole kind of story that, that went with it. Two was Uptown Girl, Billy Joel. Yeah, is that uh, uh, Billy Joel as a sort of midget hobbit mechanic chasing uh, <laughs> this giant statuesque Amazonian? And we, we can one. see that, can't we? Yeah. Yeah, she, <laughs> just, it was, it was like a wee, like, uh, Munchkin, is that the word? Yeah, I, and my wife's a big Billy Joel fan, so I better be careful what I say. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, again, he's a, another guy who I respect as a songwriter, you know. He's, written some incredible tunes, but I wouldn't thank you for a ticket to a Billy Joel gig. <laughs> You're right, it was a, a bit of a leap of faith, wasn't it, the video? I, it's like, I'm not buying that, you know. I, I buy the girl touching Lionel Richie's face and making a statue in his face before I buy Billy Joel. But then again, it did end well, up... They got married? Yeah. yeah, I know. It's, oh, just... Uh, if only you'd been in videos being a car mechanic, George. Who, who knows? Yeah, I, I really should have fucked hard for that. <laughs> uh, and number one was um, Karma Chameleon by Culture Club. 
my least favourite culture club song. Well, it's actually up there with What is Stupid? People are stupid. As <laughs> my least favourite culture club song. And I did like culture club. I liked yeah. the first couple of hits they had. I thought they were great. And then Karma Kameewin's just like, oh, no, don't do it. In the video? Video was them on a riverboat, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> it's like somewhere, it's clearly not New Orleans or something. It's clearly somewhere <laughs> down in, in Henley or uh, uh. down at the back end of the Thames. <laughs> so no, uh, not one of my favourites either. Yeah, I guess they 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 done the video before they knew how big the single was going to be, so the budget yeah. probably reflected that. I guess it was a massive. It was one of those. It's another one of those songs that was everywhere. I don't mind yeah. giant hits like you know, for instance, "Come On Eileen" from nineteen eighty two yeah. was one of those songs that's everywhere. But I love the song, so I, I don't mind how many times I hear it. I still love it. Yeah. Karma Chameleon. I just I hated it from the first time I heard it. Well, it's it was biggest, biggest selling, mate. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. But uh, that, that was the top five. Uh, also, just had a quick look at the NME singles of the year, just to see a wee bit of kind of right. context between critical and commercial. Can I say what I think will be number one? Go on then. Blue Monday. Blue Monday is number five. And I was surprised. Right, I, I thought that may have snuck on your... Sorry? Shipbuilding. Pills and Soap. Pills and Soap. By Costello is number three. Right. Um, I'll do I'll do top five. Five was Blue Order, New Order, uh, Blue Monday, sorry, New Order. Uh, four was Bad Seed by The Birthday Party. Three was Pills and Soap by Costello. Uh, two was Bring It On by James Brown. And really? number one, I don't think you'd have got actually, is Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. Really? Johnson. Yeah. Ah, great. That's a great, it's, it's, it's a tune that I, I still love. Yeah, One I think it's on, it's on your list, isn't it? I think we'll, it we'll come should to be on my list. Yeah. Quite surprised that the enemy sort of, you, you know, went yeah, that I, I, I was reading the enemy back then, I can't remember that. I, I would have swore blind it would have been something with Blue Monday or yeah. The Cure. It's quite interesting, actually. The next five are The Redskins, yeah. Lying On Me, uh, Lionel Richie, All Night Long, uh, wow. Church of the Poison Mind, Culture Club. That's a much better tune. That's yeah. a good tune. And then two bangers, uh, nine and ten. This charming man, the Smiths, and Prince, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, see, they're game changing singles. Those ones. They, they could are, all have been on your list, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they would have been on. Honestly, they, would have been, <laughs> they definitely would have been. They on. gave you a hundred songs. You would have. You'd have I could have. There. I could have got a hundred, no problem. <laughs> so uh, it didn't make the top selling, but uh, apparently your next song was the most played song on UK radio in nineteen eighty three. So tell us about the Lotus Eaters and First Picture of You. Uh, again, it's another one of those evocative tunes. As soon as I hear the intro, it, it takes me straight back to being, you know, a 16-year-old kid thinking, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I need to write something as beautiful as this. And I don't think I was ever able to. But uh, it's just, it's... For me, it was aspirational. And I don't mean aspirational as in Duran Duran aspiring to be on a fucking yacht somewhere. It was, I want to be able to do what they are doing. I just loved it so much and it, it resonated with me so much that this is what I want to do. So it's another one of those ones. Yeah, and the two guys that were in the band there, uh, the first band that they pulled together was with um, Mike Wedd. Yeah. The Welsh ones. 
still around, yeah. Still he's coming in uh, coming this year um, to yep. St. Luke's, which I'm looking forward to. Um, so they had a wee bit of a kind of Liverpool upbringing, if you want, which um, obviously a lot of bands did by then. But then they kind of stepped out and did, did their own thing, which this is one of these classic first singles, isn't it? That it's, it's another one like uh, Friends Again. It's got a level of sophistication that you wouldn't, you know, from just working class guys from a working class city. It's really lovely to hear that level of, you know, musical aspiration. Yeah, absolutely. And I did this, I say, I did read that it was the most um, played song on the, the radio that year. And I, I guess that, that tells you that, uh, like, uh, Radio 1 must have played it. Radio 2's obviously yeah, picked up on it. That's when I would have played, I, I would have been yeah. listening to it on Radio 1, which I used to listen to, you know, as much as I possibly could back then. Yeah, it was interesting. So, the you know, it was a big hit, um, sort of top 10, I think. And um, then the album came out, and the album just, just snuck into the top 100. Wow. Which normally you get like a you know a big hit a big single and from the, the single, kick. yeah, yeah. And there's a guy who uh, he reviewed it or, or retro reviewed it. A guy called Michael Sutton uh, reviewed it for All Music, and he said it was one of the most underrated albums of the '80s and a truly special record, um, a gorgeously crafted collection of melancholic guitar pop. Yeah, that works. So I for think me. you know maybe maybe when people heard the song, they maybe weren't quite ready for a full album of. Of stuff yeah. like that, you know. So it was for me. It was the, the Blue Nile would have been, you know, if I went for eighty four, the Blue Nile would have taken up a big chunk of this uh, yeah. list. Uh, but the the there's that element of sophistication in pop production that really appealed to me. Uh, uh, the year before, uh, ABC had the Lexicon of Love, yep. which is still. 40 years on it's timeless it'll last forever that album and I loved all that kind of stuff um, and the Lotus Eaters and subsequently the Blue Nile sort of took the ball and uh, people like Prefab Sprout and, you know the, the, those kind of guys took the ball and ran with it they didn't sort of left the Lotus Eaters a wee bit behind sadly they did. Well, they they never sort of hung around too long as a as a combo. I think they did yeah. an album and then they sort of tried to do another one and it, and it never worked out and stuff. And then they split up. Um, I, I've I've been a kind of follow up to that. Um, so uh, the singer Coyle, he he recorded as a solo artist after it, and I, I don't know the albums. I, I didn't get around to listening to them, but I loved a couple of the titles that he had for his albums. So one of them was called um, "A Slap in the Face for Public Taste," okay. which, which I liked. And the other one was called I'd Sacrifice Eight Orgasms with Shirley MacLaine Just to Be There. <laughs> like that, that's good. <laughs> I, I hope there's some good songs on them because the title I'd like to hear, I'd like to ask him, let's <laughs> elaborate on those titles, please. Yeah, well, they're still saying that they've got a new album coming, so it's one of these bands that, you know, like Friends Again and the guys, you, yeah, you never know, right? You never know, yeah. And it's... There, I'd imagine there's an audience. Not the Blow Monkeys came back last year. Yeah, with right. a with a new album, and yeah. I played a single on my radio show a few times. Yeah. Great tune. It's, it's yeah. it easily sits with uh, alongside their, their classic mid eighties stuff. Absolutely, it does. It does. So that, that these guys, we are classic one hit wonders. But but what a hit! Yeah. Eh? So, if you got to have one hit, that's the one to have. Absolutely, mate. So released in July eighty three, reaching number fifteen. This is the first picture of you by Lotus Eaters.
So that that was the story of the blues, and you heard us talking about about the bunny men and, and stuff there, and some gigs. So it's uh, it's nice to connect all that that stuff through again, which is lovely that whole Liverpool sound. So your next selection is a change of style and location, I guess. So tell us about the Paris match by the Style Council. Again, uh, I keep saying this, but I keep repeating myself. But it's it's like another window into another world. Uh, it just when you're growing up in early 80s Pollock, the chances of getting to somewhere like Paris are extremely... You don't think it's it's possible for somebody like yourself unless you go on a school trip. Or, yeah. But it, it just seemed very exotic to me. Um, and I was a big jam fan. And I was me too. raging that they broke up to start the Style Council. But then when I heard the Style Council and I saw Weller having so much fun... I was like, yeah, okay, I'll let, let it slide. And uh, when I heard this, I got the EP. There was an EP that Paris match was on. A Paris. A Paris, right. yep. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I just, I nearly wore it out. It was it was just perfect, perfect pop music. But it, it just made me, it, it, you know, it was the match that started my fire when it came to, you know, Paris itself. And it was a couple of years before I, I reached Paris. Um, but it's, it's a place that, I, again, it is massively influential in my life and in my work and for my family. And uh, it's, it's just a really important place to me. So it's also, it's also fairly important in your novel as well. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's one of the primary locations in the novel. And uh, a lot of people have asked me about that and... Uh, I've spent a, a, a bit of time there, you know, uh, in Paris. Never lived there, but I, I know it quite well. It's one of those towns that, like New York, I know really well, despite having not never lived there, I know it really well. Um, so the Paris match was just one of those tunes that was like a portal to another world for me and made me want to go to these places. So you said, uh, you know, the, the jam split was a pretty big thing, wasn't it, for anyone? I was that very disappointed. Very disappointed. Yeah. David um, Ross talked quite a lot about it on, on uh, his 79. He's a jam fanatic. Loves him. Yeah. Absolutely love him. He does like a different view, to be fair. He, he thinks they split at the right time. Yeah, I, um, I, looking back at it now, yeah, they probably yeah. did. At the time, yeah. when I was 15, 16, I was like, fucking how dare you? <laughs> yeah. You've still got more to do. But if you listen to the last couple of tracks that they had... Weller was clearly flexing his songwriting muscles. He was already a, an accomplished writer at this point. You could tell he was wanting to move away from the overtly masculine sound of the jam and have something a bit softer and a bit more soulful. You could yeah. tell that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would agree with David there. I would say it was probably the right time to uh, move on for the jam. And there's only about, there's about a six to eight month window between the last jam release, which I think was Beach Surrender in November, 82. Yeah. To to this coming out, and obviously yes. there's a couple of songs before that as well. You speak and, like uh, a child and Money Go Round, I money think. Money Go Round, yeah. yeah. Which were, uh, were both Speak kind like of, a child know. I loved as well. It was another track that I, I really loved from the moment I heard it, and I loved the video, uh, them in this sort of magical mystery tour with the yeah. psychedelic splashes. I loved all that stuff. So instantly, that was, as soon as I heard the Style Council doing this, and I saw Weller having fun. My resistance to the Style Council sort of 
blew away and uh, I sort of went with it. And I've really started appreciating them, uh, particularly the latter work, the, the more experimental stuff. Um, over the last few years, I've really started appreciating that because I went back in and dug in and had a wee look at it. And, uh, yeah. yeah I, I think there's probably an argument that um, he was never more um, inspired than that. Certainly that first two or three years he was with the Style Council. Absolutely. A combination of his music and his writing and he, I guess some of the sort of politics that he had in there as well, which all, nobody else was doing anything like that really at the no. time. And if you, um, if you stand his whole catalogue up, and well as another guy I've seen on numerous occasions, but if you stand his entire catalogue up, the, the, the Style Council stuff stands up really well against the jams. Yeah. Um, you could make a real good case to say that the Style Council were better than the Jam. I know that's sacrilege to a lot of people, but you know, I, I, I'm... sorry, yeah. absolutely, Style Council, the Jam. You'd have to get Gary Crowley for that one, though. I don't know if you yeah. know Gary Crowley. Yeah. Uh, Gary is a cracking fella as well, and uh, but Bobby is a good friend of Gary's, and. Uh, Bobby Hodgins, and they very cheekily asked him at the bungalow uh, bar, did this evening with Gary Crowley, and he very cheekily said, why did you break up the jam? <laughs> so he's blaming <laughs> Gary for breaking up the jam. He's, Gary's like, no, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, oh, I guess someone's got to take the blame, right? Um, so 83, they had, as you say, they had um, four singles. They had Speak Like a Child, Money Go Round, uh, Long Hot Summer and Solid Bond in your heart. Yes. Well, I Solid mean, Bond, Gary's, Gary Crowley's in the video for that. He's, that's he's right, the yeah, the kind of soul, that. Northern Soul type. Thing, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah, that's right. And uh, looked amazing, sounded amazing. It's, yeah. And uh, and then when they released the album the following year, none of those songs were on the record. Yeah. Which, again, is kind of quite unique, really, for... Well, it's a wee bit, a wee throwback to the Beatles back in the, that's the 60s. Right. It was yeah. Your singles were... You kept off the album, you know. You didn't need to put your singles on the album. Yeah, and I think they and they released. Uh, there was a, I think it was an import um, release of all of those songs uh, and the uh, Apari EP. They all came out. I think it was yeah. an introduction to the Style Council. I think it been called, but it actually didn't come out in the UK uh, that year. You had to wait on Cafe Blue for the the following year for it to come out. And then they were big for a couple of years, and um, I just scribbled a wee note here that. They went to number one the same month as Live Aid came out in '85 yeah. with the Our Favorite Shop, um, which which you know is an amazing record yeah, for a whole, yeah. a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but I also read that although they played at Live Aid because I think they were like third bad on or something. Yeah, yeah, they did. They were the only. Uh, this this won't surprise you knowing Weller, but so they came along for the the performance. Mm -hmm. They had like twenty minute slots or something, didn't yeah. they? So. Played for the twenty-minute slot. Once we're finished, they left and they all went away to film a video for the next Style Council single, somewhere down Brighton or something. They were on a bus okay. somewhere. I can't remember where it was. And then they all came back again for oh, the they finale. Came back, right? Okay. Yeah. Came back for the. They came, they came back for the the. Would you call it the finale kind of thing? That's right. Imagine yeah, at, well and the, par the party and all that stuff, you know, oh, he didn't miss man. that, you know, but um, yeah, he bailed out from the whole day apart from the... Yeah, the, it's probably no yeah. well seen though, hanging about with, you know, no, Phil no, Collins and Paul Young and all those guys, you know, the who. Oh, absolutely. He didn't have the hair really, did he? So, 
Um, and and uh, also eighty five. I think we, we mentioned kind of off camera there that they played the last gig at the Apollo. Yeah, they did. Um, as well, which was in June eighty five as well. So this was all about the same time, and um, you know it was kind of I suppose sad way in lots of ways that the Apollo closed, but uh, quite a nice band I guess maybe to yeah, yeah. sign off. Last song was uh, "Move On Up," which uh, yeah, it's not a bad way to do it, is it? Yeah. Not a bad way to do it. And I dug out a couple of things before we move on. So talking about Apollo there, I just went and had a couple of kind of quick um, Google searches to see if it was interesting him up. So when it reopened again in 73, because it was Greens before that, wasn't it? Yeah. Apollo. So first gig to play there was Johnny Cash, oh, really? uh, which was great. And then 74, Roxy recorded Viva, you know, the live record that they did. That was from the Apollo um, Co Live. We mentioned that briefly earlier on there. It was from the Apollo in 76. Uh, ACDC, if you want blood, you got it. Yeah. Um, 78. Uh, also 78, the Rosillo's final gig was at the Apollo. Right. Uh, November 79 uh, was ABBA's last ever live gig in the UK. Yeah, last night from Glasgow. Last night from Glasgow. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And then just to kind of bookend all that, you had the jam with uh, the majority of uh, Dig the New Breed from their two gigs they played in Apollo in 82. 82, that may have been the ones I was at, but they, yeah. uh, in 1980, I know that McCartney's coming up, the live version of that was number one in the States. You know, that's a great that show, actually. That was live at Glasgow Apollo. It absolutely was, yeah, yeah, you're right, I picked up on that as well. So again, I kind of sorely miss venue and um, oh, yeah, yeah. part of Glasgow's folklore, really, isn't it? It's probably another story to tell, for sure. Indeed. There's also, there's a brilliant documentary, I don't know if you, you noticed this one, I think it came out beginning of last year, um, called Long Hot Summers, which uh, was about an hour and 20 minutes worth of a style council, yeah. kind of retrospective. It's fantastic, it's really good. It's brilliant, and it's brilliant because the songs are brilliant and stuff, but if you remember, they also, they get back together at the end Beautiful and play it together, song one song. It's a very deep perfect. sea, I think, one of the older tracks. Um, yeah, loved beautiful. it. Absolutely brilliant. And my last bit on, on Weller and all this time is that I also read, uh, sorry, watched the other day the Red Wedge documentary. Right. It's kicking about on YouTube. Now that is worth 40 minutes of your life. It's, um, that, yeah. yeah, it's fascinating, George. Um, the Redskins, so Billy Bragg and all those guys. And... It's Style Council, it's Madness, it's Bragg, it's Lloyd Cole, it's Jimmy Somerville, it's Tom Robinson, it's Jerry Dammers. Um it's okay. brilliant. It's on it's, YouTube, there's yeah. A, there's a, yeah, it's on YouTube. There's a few songs on it, um, but there's also quite a lot of chat, as you can imagine, because mm -hmm. they were doing that tour and they were doing, like, hustings yeah. around the country. I, I went to see them at Apollo, and I remember there being a, a kind of meet-and-greet thing there as well. So, But that is, that's fascinating, 40 minutes of your, your life. Well, I'll definitely off. watch that, yeah. So, from the Apparit EP, released in July 83, this is the Paris March from the Style Council. Hello there, and our chat about Paul Weller's Style Council and all things from 1983 takes us to the end of the first part of our music podcast discussion with Josh Patterson. Hope you've enjoyed it so far. Part two of the podcast is also available now. Find us on Spotify, search over our garden wall, or find us on Apple Podcasts. All the best now. Stay safe.